0: Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting with verse 31. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Notice he says, no matter what, you don't respond. If it's something that's a, of a flute and it's a joyful song, you didn't dance. If it's a dirge, you didn't cry. Look at verse uh, number 33 then. It says, for John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. For the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Look at verse 34, because there's an allegation made against Jesus here. And that is, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, That he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, once again, good morning to each and every one of you, and welcome to week two of our current Sunday morning series titled, This We Believe. Now friends, I believe it is imperative that every Christian know what they believe and to know why they believe it. Furthermore, what we believe should be firmly grounded in the word of Almighty God. Now with that in mind, last week we began our brand new series by unashamedly declaring that Discover Church believes the entire Bible cover to cover is the inspired Word of God. Literally, we said, it is God-breathed. And any time you think of breath, you think of giving life and sustaining life. And so the Word of God literally gives life and sustains life. Discover Church believes the Bible is accurate, that it is authoritative, and it is applicable to our everyday life. The Bible is a book of amazing balance. You cannot just land on one particular portion and then claim, you know, the word of God or the plan of God. There's a balance in God's word. You'll find at times when he talks about you're going to live in victory all the way through the difficulties of life. Then at other times, it'll tell you, you should expect in this world, you will have tribulation. And so there's a balance in all of this. And as individuals, we dare not pick and choose from Scripture and then ignore the rest and hope somehow that we'll become balanced followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We simply believe the Word of God. Now moving on this morning, we're going to examine the first of our four cardinal doctrines. When you hear that term, cardinal doctrine, it means essential doctrine, and that which is the very heart of the gospel. And so this morning, as we consider the first of four cardinal doctrines we find in the Bible, we're going to investigate and examine, we believe Jesus is the only Savior of mankind. Now, the Bible tells us that God created Adam and Eve, and he created them for relationship and created them for fellowship. Think about that for a moment. That's pretty interesting to know that God that has all things at his disposal He took from the dust of the ground, created Adam, and then out of Adam, created Eve, so that he might have someone to have relationship and friendship with. You're no mistake today either. Just as God specifically made Adam, I believe God has specifically made each and every one of you. And the willful sin of Adam and Eve, we know about how sadly it broke that relationship and that fellowship with God. When God came to the garden in the cool of the day, early morning and late at night is what that refers to. When God came, rather than Adam and Eve running to him after sin, they ran from God. And rather than giving up on mankind, God set his eternal plan immediately into action. The Bible shows us how he first sent the law through Moses, but his law was ignored and broken. Then he sent his prophets, but they, along with their message, were rejected and even killed. And thirdly, God sent his only begotten son from heaven. The Bible says, is seeking to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And for the next few moments now, what we want to do, I want you to consider along with me what I believe to be one of the most incredible attributes about Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, what can be an incredible attribute that is beyond, you know, he is all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, which means he's in all places at the same time. What is it that would be simply mind-boggling as an attribute about the Lord Jesus Christ? The fact is, And I believe that this attribute sets him apart in such a wonderful way for all of us. And that is the fact that the Bible says Jesus was a friend of sinners. This amazing truth, I believe, is found all throughout the Gospels. For example, in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, we find Jesus calling his 12 disciples. And he starts out, the first was the call to Peter. And then it was to his brother Andrew followed by James and John. And then it was Philip and Nathaniel. So far, if you look at that list, his team is comprised of four rough and tough commercial fishermen, two of which have a nickname, and the nickname that was given to them is Sons of Thunder. And so it lets you know a little bit about how the community saw James and John. They must have seen him as little troublemakers running around the village, from little children on, and now they have the nickname, and the nickname is they're the sons of thunder. Everywhere they go, there's something shaking. Now let me talk for a few moments about this unlikely bunch. If you were to choose, if I were to choose, individuals that were going to expand the kingdom of God and were going to follow after me as Jesus was followed by his disciples, you probably wouldn't have chosen any one of these men. His next choice even is even more interesting. And I actually, I would say it was actually even more of a gutsy choice than over the uh, fisherman. We find it in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. Listen to what it says. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Sitting at his tax booth, Follow me, Jesus said unto him, And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that that belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now Levi, he was a tax collector, the Bible tells us. He is also known by the name of Matthew. You might ask the question, well, how is it that he has two names? Well, Levi is the Hebrew name and Matthew is the Greek. And so this man by the name of Levi or Matthew, he was a tax collector. Historians tell us that his tax collecting booth was located just west of the little town of Capernaum. It was on the main crossroads between Capernaum and Tiberius, And from Tiberias on up to Nazareth, from Nazareth over to Jerusalem, Jerusalem to Bethlehem, all the region round about. So his tax booth was right at a very strategic crossroads where everyone coming or going by would have to pass by this tax booth. It is much like driving to Chicago. And as you drive to Chicago, you come to all those toll booths and they get you whether you're going north or going south. Don't tell me they didn't choose the location strategically. And so it was for Levi. Levi chose a very strategic place, the crossroads of where people would be coming and going at that time to set up his tax collecting booth. Now of all the Roman officials of Palestine, none were more hated than the despised tax collectors. The fact that taxes were being imposed by foreign power was a continuous source of irritation to the Jews. Now paying taxes to Rome was a constant reminder then that they were under the dominance of a foreign power and they were sick and tired of it. They did not like the taxes and they certainly did not like anyone collecting these taxes. Tax collectors were seen as instruments of Roman oppression. They were extortionists, enriching themselves at the expense of their brothers and sister Jews in the land of Palestine. Here's the way it worked during that time. They would collect money for Rome, but any money they wanted to collect above that, they could keep for themselves. And so they were extortionists in the minds of the Jews. They were extorting not only for the Romans, but for themselves. And these uh, tax collectors, they lived very high on the hog that day. So any Jew then would accept this kind of a uh, position Collecting taxes was looked on as being a betrayer of the honor of his nation as well as his fellow people. And such individuals then were despised and considered to be apostate and classified with the worst of the worst of society. The Pharisees, they judged Levi then according to his employment. They looked at him as a turncoat, he was a low life tax collector. For Rome. Now, Jesus, however, when he saw Levi, he did not look at him as for what he was, but rather for what he might become. Jesus saw that Levi was an individual with a gnawing hunger for truth and having a relationship with God was a desirous soul. And Jesus simply then invited, as he walked by that tax collecting booth, he said to Levi, follow me. And Levi's response is really quite remarkable. It says in verse 28 of Luke chapter 5, Levi got up, he left everything, and followed him. There was no hesitation. There was no questioning. There was no second thoughts, not even regarding the lucrative business that he was leaving behind of tax collecting. And when Jesus chose Levi... When he chose him, Jesus knew the potential backlash that he would face for making such a choice. For a religious leader to choose a tax collector as one of his followers or disciples was an offense against religion, against the social and the national customs of the day. Now adding fuel to the fire, before following after Jesus, here's what Levi did. Levi held a going-away party at his house and invited all of his friends, his relatives, and his tax-collecting associates to come to this party. Now it's evident here that Levi wanted everyone to meet Jesus. He knew how Jesus was transforming his life, and he wanted everyone to know, and especially those that were his friends, his family, and his associates in tax collecting. He wanted everyone to meet Jesus. And so at this gathering, this party, Jesus was to be the guest of honor. And as such, he did not hesitate to say, yes, I'll come, I'll be at your party, Levi. And as such, Jesus would have been seated then at the head table, surrounded in that moment by Levi's friends. So I want you to picture this. If you were to look into Levi's home, Jesus would be seated at the head table next to Levi, and then surrounding him would be all these other tax collectors from throughout from the region. And in the culture of that day, eating with someone was more than just a meal affair. To eat with someone meant that you valued them and that you considered them as an equal in your life. So by eating with this despised group, Jesus was declaring this group that you say is trash has value to God. And as they dined, their hungry hearts were feeding on every single word that came from the mouth of Jesus. New desires began to awaken, and the possibility of a brand new life began to dawn on these outcasts of society. The total impact of this one single dinner at Levi's house will never truly be known. Many present at that time They became followers of Jesus Christ. The number we do not know, but we know that many of them did. And when the rabbis now, the religious leaders, heard that Jesus was at this Levi's house, they seized the opportunity to accuse him of hanging out with the sinners and the low life of the city. The Pharisees, now they attacked this whole concept of Jesus having a meal with them. And he did, they did so by bypassing Jesus, and they took their accusations directly to the disciples. They did so in hoping that they would arouse in the disciples some kind of a suspicion as to who Jesus was, and even to his character. And so they asked him this question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If you are really followers of a holy man, this is against all custom. If you are eating with these low life, it only is an indication of the real heart that you have. You are following after this Jesus character. We don't much like him and we don't like the people he hangs around. And you should know better is what what they were saying to the disciples. Now, Jesus didn't wait for the disciples to answer this charge but he rather broke in and he answered it for himself. Look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 5. It says, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You're saying these people are sin sick, that they're not of any value. Anyone that has any kind of understanding of medicine, you would know it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. And Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees at that moment were momentarily silenced. However, they became even more determined that they were going to discredit Jesus in any way that they may conjure up. And so the Pharisees then, they went on and they began to go after the followers of John the Baptist. We read about that in Luke chapter 7. Listen to what happens now. Remember... They see Jesus at the home of Levi, and they are they are aghast. How can a holy man have a meal with such low life as these tax collectors and sinners? And so now Jesus, having answered him, said, I've not come to those that are whole. No more than a doctor comes to the home of somebody that's well. He comes to the home of somebody that needs medical help and medical intervention. And so now they go, and they're angry, and they go to the the followers of John the Baptist. We read about it now in Luke 7, verse 29. It says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptized by John. Notice, these followers of John have received already so much light. Remember, the Bible says that John the Baptist would be the forerunner for the Messiah. John's message was one that was a a message of the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn from your wicked ways, turn from your sin. And he was baptizing them as such. And so it says all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Friends, spiritual growth is generally step by step. And what we have just read here, those that followed after John had been baptized by John's baptism of repentance. They were closer to the kingdom than those that had not. And generally, when a person comes to Christ, it's not just hearing the gospel one time and then giving their life to Christ. Most of us here in this room, we heard the gospel more than once. And God in his mercy saw to the fact that we heard the gospel more than once, although we certainly did not deserve it. Most individuals that make a decision for Christ hear the gospel presentation, whether it's by radio, somebody at their job, a next-door neighbor, on you know, on television, or by some some means, they hear the gospel five times before they make their commitment to Christ. So here we find these followers of John, their hearts are open. They're open because they've taken the first steps. You might call it baby steps, call it what you will, but they're beginning to have a hunger for the things of God, and John leads them this far, and then he points them and says, here's the one you need to be following, Jesus, he is the Messiah. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, back at verse 30, it says they rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They had not even taken the first step. To what then, Jesus said, can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? So Jesus is wondering, how can I give you an illustration about the way that you are acting? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other. We played the flute for you. Now I want you to notice, he's going to go to the far extremes. One is going to be the extreme of joy, and the other one being of sadness. He said, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. So he said, We tried that, we brought you great joy and you weren't willing to dance. And then we sang the dirge, which is a funeral song, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came, neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. He's comparing it now, he says, here's on the far extreme, just as the music with the flute or with the dirge, he says, John the Baptist, he came and he had a message for you. He neither ate bread nor drank wine. And you say, this man's nuts. This man has a demon. And the Son of Man, speaking of himself, Jesus, came eating and drinking. And you say, there, he is, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, John the Baptist was straight-laced. He was all business he was a recluse living in the desert. His fiery message might be summarized by simply saying he would preach either turn or burn. He made no you know, way other than you make it. It's either white or it's black. You make a choice of your life. It's heaven or hell. And John, when you look at his life, John would have never been caught dead at any kind of a party or a social affair. Yet to discredit him, the religious leaders said, John, he's a madman. He is a demon-possessed individual. Let's, Let's mark him as being crazy. Just mark off John the Baptist. Have nothing to do with this nutcase. And the Pharisees then, they accused Jesus of gluttony, drunkenness, and being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, friends, you need to understand that the accusation that Jesus was a glutton who was totally, you know, given over to wine and women and the like, all of that is totally, completely unfounded. Jesus was no more a glutton or a drunkard than John was demon-possessed. Matter of fact, if you carefully study God's Word, it will debunk any claims that Jesus ever drank intoxicating wine or made fermented wine. The truth is the fact that the accusations that they made against Jesus and these accusations were that he was a drunkard, he was a wine-bibber, he was one that was off to every single party. And remember what did Jesus do? And he's showing them, you know, no matter what we give you, you reject. We sent you John. John says, turn and burn or burn and you don't listen to him. Son of man has come, I go to your parties, I meet and eat with you know, your families and I do what John would have never done and again, you discount me and my message. The only truth in their accusations was the fact that Jesus did befriend the tax collectors and the sinners. You know, in Luke chapter four, Jesus declares the very reason for his coming. He says this in Luke chapter 4. He said, I've come to the poor, to the ones that have been the outcasts, those that have been absolutely undertrodden and uh, been abused by the Romans and by the tax situation and the like. He said, I've come to the poor. I've come for the brokenhearted, the one whose heart is broken, the one that is a captive, not necessarily the one that's captive in a prison cell, but rather in a prison cell of their own making, the prison cell that drugs bring, that addictions of all sorts bring. Jesus, I've come for the poor. I've come for the brokenhearted. I've come for the captive. I've come for the blind. I've come for the bruised. Whenever you read that word "broods" in Scripture, it's talking about those whose heart, their spirit has been broken, been trampled upon. I've come for the hurting. I've come for the lonely. I've come for the friendless. Jesus said, if you're looking for a friend, no matter how messed up your life is, I want you to know that I love you, I care about you, and that I've come on a mission, and that mission is seeking to save the lost. And that I've come not for the wise, I've not come for those that have great degrees. I've come for anyone of any stage of education, any part or place in the stratus of life. I've come so that all might have life and have it abundantly. Now I'm so glad that Jesus is the friend of sinners. You know, the Bible tells us in John chapter 15 and verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. When Jesus went to the cross, he gave his life for you and for me. And remember what he called us, he called us friends. I'm so glad that when he sees our lives, he sees us not for what we are, but for what and what we can become. So why did Jesus then choose the likes of a Levi? Why did he choose a James and John, sons of thunder? Why a Peter or an Andrew, just commercial fishermen out on the Sea of Galilee? I believe it is that he would want to show his grace and his mercy in such a way that it would be a display of his mercy and his grace and it would be a trophy of his grace each and every one of those individuals. I want you to know that God loves you. God cares for you. And when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the Bible says that God had a plan in place. And the first part of the plan was he sent the law. And what they did the law that Moses gave, they broke it. And then he sent his prophets, saying, you need to get ready, Messiah's gonna come. What did they do to the prophets? They rejected the prophets, and they killed them. And then he sent his only begotten son. And it was on a mission that he came. And the Bible says the mission was to seek and then to save the lost. Jesus loves and cares for sinners. He is the friend of the sinner. And I'm so glad that he loves and cares for sinners today. That lets me know that I have hope. It lets me know that you have hope. It lets me know this world that surrounds us has hope. Won't you to bow your heads for a moment, Father? Lord, we're so grateful that you love this world. So grateful that you love us as individuals. You know us. The Bible says by name. You know the very number of hairs that are upon our head. You know when our hearts are towards you, and you know when our hearts have grown cold and against you. Lord, you specifically chose to spend that time in the home of Levi, in that small little village of Capernaum, where everyone would know what's going on. And as they looked through the windows, and they said, I can't believe it. Jesus claims to be a holy man, yet he spends a meal in time with sinners like that, low life, people that are extorting taxes from us. Father, I thank you that you showed through an example time and time again of how you chose the least likely because you love sinners and you love mankind. Thank you for coming to this world. Thank you for the difference you've made in our lives. Thank you for the difference you can make in lives here this morning to the one that's captive, the one that's bruised, the one that's heartbroken over situations that have happened in their life, things that they cannot repair on their own. Lord, we're so glad you love us and you care that much. With heads bowed and eyes closed,